Hey everyone and welcome to a new edition of the Iowa Agronomy Update. Uh, we've got a, a new session here today and we've got uh, Matt Nelson here with us. And Matt, uh, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great. So Matt is our uh, kind of our resident weed management uh, expert here, uh, kind of a market development rep for Southwest Iowa and the Seeds and Traits uh, Department, but also handles a lot of our, our weed management uh issues and questions and protocols uh, as well. Matt, what, you know, spraying and weeds, you know, it's it's probably the one of the least favorite things that we have to deal with as far as production practices and having to mm-hmm. deal with these pests. What, what got you excited to go into weed management when you decided to move on to your master's degree? Yeah, that's a good question, Brent. So I, I had uh, got my undergrad at Iowa State in soil science. So Moving to weed science was quite a jump, and those two aren't exactly uh, related going from soil science no. to, weed, to weed science. So um, I honestly saw it as kind of the next step, learning about soil science, uh, started to read more about tillage practices and no-till and, and even conservation uh, like cover crops. And uh, what, what all that made me realize is as you move away from tillage, you end up being a bit more reliant on herbicides uh, for weed control. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that becomes more important and uh, I've kind of realized that as I've gotten into weed science, and as, as Brent mentioned, I got a master's degree in, in that field, and now I get to both work on the seed and trait side and do some weed management on, uh, in addition. So um, it's just an important topic, and it's something that I've realized most people pick up knowledge about weed management and herbicides and sprayers uh, through experience in the field and farming, but it's rarely something that's ever taught. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of fascinating uh, to see where people get you know, their knowledge about something like weed management. Yeah, so we, we kind of picked this topic, assuming that there'll be a, a lot of folks uh, sitting in the sprayers here in the next week or so uh, out trying to get ahead of, of the planters or, or stay w- uh, up to speed with the planters at, at this point. But, you know, in the last week and a half or so, we've seen a lot of cover crop get burned down and we've seen a lot of soybean prees get put on and, and then trying to stay up with some corn planting uh, as well, and it certainly is very variable depending upon where you're at in the state. But back to this whole cover crop burn down, uh, Matt. So something that we found here at the Learning Center last year was I felt like that we are we undervaluing the use of a cover crop going into a soybean year on how you can utilize that cover crop to help with your weed management decisions the following year. You know. That's a, that's a great question. I think the answer is probably yes. When we talk about cover crops, especially in Iowa, it's generally centered around tying up nitrogen in particular to keep it from leaching through the groundwater. Uh, also for erosion control to help stabilize whether it's your side hill or if you've got fields that are erodible or if you just want a nice living cover out on that field to kind of generate biomass and, and maybe help with your carbon to nitrogen ratios as you move back into the spring. That tends to be where we talk about cover crops, but there are some benefits to weed uh, to weed suppression and, and helping with weed management. And I think the the, the chief one there is uh, while it you know you you seed it in the fall, uh, whether it's uh, I guess late summer or after the after the combine goes through, it'll it'll then green up a bit. And but and for the most part, I think the the majority of growth we've seen this year has been in the spring. Yeah. So we didn't we didn't get a ton established last year, and what was uh, established was pretty late. Uh, based on what happened with harvest. So 
and, and honestly, I've seen a lot of growers. You mentioned uh, that they've been out spraying cover crops. I've also seen a lot of guys letting their rye put on some biomass. Uh, I've seen yep. rye grow pretty quickly here the last two week, two or three weeks as conditions have been really nice and it's been warm. And what that does is it, it uh, gives you something to compete with winter annual weeds. So uh, there are quite a few winter annuals that we get in Iowa that a lot of them germinate in the fall and then over winter and take off early in the spring. Some of them is, you know, as soon as late March. So having something out planted across your field really uh, almost completely outcompetes those winter annuals. Uh, and you, you can reap some reward from that even after you, you, know, you go and you spray your cover crop or, or you kill it with tillage. Uh, that, that residue that's left on the soil can actually still help keep those, some of those weeds from emerging. So I think absolutely uh, we, we don't talk about the benefit from that enough. Yeah, and so you mentioned – you know your winter annuals and, and early emergers, Matt, and certainly something that we're starting to see uh, a large amount of, especially in the southern southern part of the states, definitely getting warm enough, and those winter annuals are starting to get some some growth on them, and and those early emergers are really starting to happen. What what are we really looking for there as far as what what to watch out for um, with those pesty uh, you know those pesty uh, winter annuals? So yeah, you know it's it's funny it. It seems, uh, for some reason, it seems late in, in the spring or, or late in April. We're sitting here, it, it's April 23rd. In reality, it's only been nice enough to plant here for about a week, five, five six days. Um, but those weeds have been growing for you know, long before then. So uh, when we talk about weeds, we generally have uh, you know annual weeds and biennial weeds. But with annuals, we have winter and summer annuals. So winter annuals are weeds that still compete complete their life cycle in about a year, um, but they just emerge at different times. So... Uh, winter annuals, the ones that we deal with the most um, would be weeds like prickly lettuce, shepherd's purse. Uh, henbit is one that I think a lot of us see in the spring as you look out across your soybean fields. Uh, if it looks rather purple, that means you've got a nice stand of henbit growing out there. Uh, but those are generally weeds uh, that aren't uh, as problematic when it comes to weed control and, and, uh, and yield issues. The, the two that we really focus on, or the one I guess, is uh, definitely mare's tail. So yeah. it's, it's called mare's tail here in Iowa, horseweed, uh, other places. I think field pennycrest can cause some yield issues as well, but really mare's tail is the big one. Um, so mare's tail is, uh, again, a winter annual. About 50 to 90% of it will survive the winter. So that means a lot of this, this seed is germinating uh, in the late summer, early fall. And then it overwinters as a rosette, which is basically just uh, kind of a small circle of leaves that uh, the rest of the plant will grow out of in the spring. And uh, mare's tail is mainly a problem in no-till fields. And, you know, I, I cover southwest Iowa and I grew up in western Iowa, so I'm very, very familiar with this weed. It's one of our most problematic in soybeans. Um, so that's the one that you probably should be worrying about. And when it comes to control, tillage will do a nice job either in the fall or the spring. Uh, but again, I'm a no-till guy, and I know there's a lot of no-till in places in the western part of the state and in south-central Iowa as well. Um, so the key for controlling a weed like mare's tail is getting after it early in the spring. So uh, this weed will bolt around this time of year, and what that means is uh, it, within a few weeks, it'll go from a, a small plant on the ground to you know being upwards of six inches tall. And as we kind of say in, in weed management, once that weed bolts, there's really nothing you can do to control it. It's It's nearly impossible to... To bring back down. So some other early, some other early emerging weeds that we see this time of year. Uh, really, the first one that we think of as a as a summer annual that starts to pop out of the ground this time of year is common lambs quarters. And if you don't believe me, Brent, go home and look in your garden. Or if you, I've got yep. a I've got a planter box at home. There's only one thing growing in it right now, and it's common lambs quarters. Yep. So yep. Um, it comes up early, 
and it can often be confused with water hemp or any of the amaranth species. Um, if you're not sure which one it is, uh, Common Lamb's Corners generally has a really powdery white coating on it. Um, it also looks kind of like a minty green color. It's a little bit different from water hemp. So at least you shouldn't have water hemp emerging this time of year. If, if you yeah. do, um, that's a serious problem. But <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other big ones that we really see uh, in soybean would be uh, like the ragweed species. Um, so sure. Brent, we don't have much of that in southwest Iowa, but it's become more prevalent across the state. So yeah. common in giant ragweeds. Um, they, they emerge very early and they're very hard to control because they can grow to be very tall. Um, and that growth starts when they emerge. So yeah. that's a weed that we really need to be controlling. Uh, if they get to, you know, six to eight feet tall like they can in the summer, you're looking at some really serious yield reductions in places. The last ones, these are mainly I, I see in corn, Brent, would be large seeded broadleaf weeds like cocklebur, velvet leaf, and sunflower. Mm, so cockleburs. Hey, you know, guys used to get, you know, a penny or a nickel for everyone they used to pull as a kid, right? Right. So are they still around? You know, not so much, right? So population, <laughs> population shift as, you know, the Roundup Ready crops have come yeah. on the market. Um, it really depends on your site. So my research site, which Brent used to manage as well, has a serious velvet leaf problem and some cockleburr as well. Yep. I, I think over the years there may be a couple of falls where those were let to go to seed, and, and we all know that uh, those love to be spread by the combine. Yep. Um, so those are those still certainly can be problematic though. And you, you can find velvet leaf in soybeans. It's not uncommon to have that be a problematic weed there as well. But uh, the reason these are an issue in the spring is uh, the seeds can emerge from various depths in the soil. I think velvet leaf can emerge from up to three inches deep. So that's just a very hard depth to try to control those weeds. And a lot of times because of that, they can grow right through our pre-emergence herbicides. Sure. Yeah, I, I, many nightmares uh, from cockleburr polling as a kid. Uh, glad to see, though, that our generation made a dent in that population. You certainly did. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it because I still haven't seen a nickel of that, of that money yet that I was supposed <laughs> to get. So. Uh, anyway, so let, let's keep moving on here and really we're getting into um, some more specifics here on really kind of the system that we've been, uh, you know, talk a lot about, you know, is there is there better spray systems as far as tips and gallons per acre coverage or, you know, really what are we what are we looking at there to help control a lot of these early emergers? Yeah, so um you know, the spring is, is kind of a hectic time between tillage, and I know this year everyone seems to be waiting on the N-word, which is nitrogen. Uh, that's that's kind of the, the million-dollar buzzword this spring is uh, when you're getting your nitrogen, yep. where is it coming from? Yep, yep. Um, what type? What type, correct. Yep. So uh, I know uh, something like your sprayer can kind of get put on the back burner. I think we've all probably done it before. Um, but it's important to, to get your sprayer out and get it set up for spring. So uh, couple just a couple tips in general. Uh, hopefully you winterize your sprayer if it sat outside or in the cold. Um, so that means you probably have some sort of antifreeze in it, so you need to clean it anyway. Um, my big recommendation for folks in the spring is to uh, run liquid through it, clean it, and then check anything, check for leaks. So your lines, any of your fittings, your valves, make sure that everything's buttoned up. Uh, from there, uh, you can start to check other things on your sprayer. So your, your pressure gauges, uh, any electronic meters like your flow meter, your rate controller, uh, your control valves, make sure that everything works. Then from there we get into um, calibrating and, and kind of making sure that you're, you're set up to, to get off to a weed control when you go out and spray. So a couple things you can do to, to check that are to, uh, to check your nozzles. Uh, it's okay to keep nozzles and reuse them. They make, you know, stainless tips are supposed to last a while, but you need to make sure that they're clean. Um, 
go ahead and run water through your sprayer and check the pattern on them. If, if uh, the pattern is coming through patchy or incomplete, it means you've got something to plug in the nozzle tip. Um, and then you also need to calibrate. So get out some graduated cylinders or five gallon buckets if you're using a really big sprayer um, and uh, set a time and, and collect, uh, collect water that comes out of your sprayer and, and make sure that your, your rate is correct. Uh, there's nothing worse than thinking you're putting out one rate of liquid and uh, running out of um, solution halfway across the amount of acres you wanted to get through. That means you've been over applying for the last uh, 20 or 25 acres. So, yep. uh, so those are all very important things. And I think um, for, for pre-weed control, um, there, there are a couple benefits, I guess, but these also come with downsides. One common uh, trend that I see in pre-application, Brent, is, is guys knowing there aren't crops up uh, around them, so they're not really concerned with the conditions when they spray. Yeah. Um, however, you, you want it to be warm, and maybe you know this week it hasn't been an issue, but really uh, above 50 degrees, and even as you get down towards 55, 50, that can be a, a little bit cool for some products, uh, especially if it's cloudy. You, you, you still want some sun, you want around a day like today where the weather is 60 yeah. degrees, uh, and also droplet size. I, I know there are no crops up, but um, you know that means you can you can still use. Uh, it's okay to still use a larger droplet size. Just because there aren't a lot of crops in the field doesn't mean you, you need to put the flat fans back on. Right. Um, you know, reducing drift is still important, and I think all of these uh, tie kind of right into what we've been preaching for dicamba applications as well. Mm -hmm. So, so those larger droplet size uh, tips are still going to get your coverage. For those small emerging weeds in a burn down application, yeah, it's a, gr it's a great question. So, uh, you know, with your burn down, you're you're generally wanting to take care of whatever weeds have emerged. Um, then, as you move into your pre, you're looking to to cover any any weeds that have come up since you sprayed your burn down or did your tillage, and then also put that residual product down. So, so yeah, you know, for example, like the the, the TTI one ten o four is a nozzle that we can use to spray uh, any of the the new approved dicamba formulations. There are combinations of of pressures that will get you, you know, your, while your droplets are still like ultra coarse, they're kind of on the smaller end of that droplets approved droplet size spectrum, and and those droplets at a carrier volume like 15 gallons per acre uh, do give you good enough coverage to to control these smaller weeds that are that are just starting to emerge. Now that being said, you want to avoid low carrier volumes and low pressures when you're using those those low drift nozzles. So when Brett mentions those larger nozzles, that's kind of what we're referring to. They're, they're usually called low drift nozzles. Uh, you really want to avoid pressures, uh, like a minimum pressure, for example, like 15 or 20 PSI. I really think 40 is, is a really good pressure to run at and then, you know, on up from 40. And then carry volume wise, you know, nothing less than 15. I know it's, it's tempting in the spring to go and run out there with 10 GPA, yeah. but if you're using larger droplets, you really want to be sure that you're up around 15 or, or, or higher to, to get maximum coverage. Get your coverage, sure. Yep. So Matt, you we've kind of gone through some of those uh, lower lower drift type nozzles and, and tips that we talk about. Uh, so that kind of leads us into the uh, Extend uh, herbicide mm -hmm. system. What what's new with that system this year? Uh, for as far as requirements, uh, any new requirements as far as training and and what uh, what are we looking at for this this spring in twenty nineteen in the Extend system? Sure. So this is the the second year that I've done training. Uh, this is kind of the third year that we've we've had trainings for uh, spraying you know approved dicamba formulations uh, on Extend soybeans. So I think the dicamba, dicamba training went well this spring. That the six or seven that I did. Uh, seem to have gone better as people have gotten more comfortable, a bit more familiar with the technology. So 
Um, I guess a few things that I'll, that I'll hit on. Uh, whenever I did one of these trainings, Brian, I had three key takeaways. I, if I, I told folks, yep. if you picked up nothing else today, the, here, are, here are the three things I want you to remember. So the first one is no AMS in your system. And this ties back into what we talked about earlier, uh, starting with a clean sprayer when you go out to, to do your burn down or your pre this fall. Um, Keeping AMS out of that system is absolutely critical. Uh, if you've been through the training, you know, you've probably heard this several times, but it doesn't take very much dicamba to, to affect the spray solution with, uh, or sorry, it doesn't take much AMS, that is, to affect uh, the spray solution when using dicamba or really, you know, other growth regulators. Mm -hmm. um, so then that's, it, you know, certainly don't want to add AMS, but even some AMS left up in solution in your pump or something like right. that can be enough to to alter that spray solution. So we really want to keep AMS out of the sprayer. Uh, another one is if there's a sensitive crop downwind, uh, do not spray. I think uh, label language can be kind of complicated and the label has evolved and gotten better uh, to, our, to our current iteration. Um, and it's, it's done a better job of clarifying you know when in when you do or don't need a buffer, and I guess the key, the, the key there is again if, if there's a, a sensitive crop, so non dicamba tolerant soybeans or one of the other sensitive crops listed on the label, and it's immediately downwind of of the direction in the field that you're spraying. Uh, there's no buffer that will work in that case. Uh, you need to wait for the wind to shift before you spray. So um, that was the second one, and the third big point um, was about application window. So this is a change new to this year. Uh, the approved formulations of dicamba, like Xenomax, can be sprayed uh, post-emergence uh, from 40, up to 45 days after planting uh, or just prior to R1. So before that label said through the beginning of flowering, and uh, now that label or that cutoff is right before flowering. So if you see one flower, you know, the upper note on that plant, that means it's time to stop spraying uh, that herbicide. So um, that's, an, that's another, another change. Uh, there are a few other ones, uh, actually a beneficial change. Uh, the EPA has clarified that a mowed or managed right-of-way like a ditch can now be part of your buffer um, when, you're, when you're spraying this product. So there are some good changes to the label that I think make it uh, a little bit clearer um, and should make people feel more comfortable yeah. going into this season. Yeah. A little easier to use with yes. those changes. Uh, a little bit of buzz that we heard a, a little bit about is the pH of your water. Sure. Uh, where, where does that play in and how... Uh, why is that so important for a grower to know his pH of his water that he's using in the tank? That's a great question. So the the issue of, of uh, pH has always kind of been on the label, but the new label brought it out more formally with the statement. Um, and it basically said to not use anything that will acidify your spray solution uh, as that could affect it and maybe lead to some volatility. Um, and that's certainly a, a true statement, really low pH solutions that can happen. Um, but what we've kind of found through some of the work that we've done internally is that as long as your water pH-wise is, is safe to drink, um, you usually don't have, it doesn't get, it won't get to a low enough pH where you're going to see these problems. So uh, that said, is it is it possible that you may have some really acidic water? That that certainly is possible. And if you're concerned, um, there are there are ways to test it. They make strips or yep. uh, there are a couple of different methods, I think, to test how acidic your water is. So that's something to be aware of if you think you, your water may be uh, you know, pretty acidic, but I think in general we have a more neutral pH water here in Iowa. The key though is to use adjuvants that don't acidify your spray solution. Sure. So if you go to the the, uh, the website that has all this information, uh, which is www.extendamaxapplicationrequirements.com, you'll find a list of approved adjuvants and there'll be a long list of ones uh, that you can use that, uh, you know, they're made specifically to not make your spray solution 
uh, more acidic. Sure. So we we got through the extend system now, and and really we we're probably ready to start thinking about our pre and post timings here, and really got a lot of guys out already doing this, and especially southern part of the state and central part of the state starting to. I uh, just got back from the co-op myself and a and number of rigs uh, headed out. You know, whether it's a, a one-pass pre or a, a two-pass program, you know, just can you walk us through some of the, the timings here on, on what we should should be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when we talk about our weed management system, um, we're kind of in that first part of the year. And this is where I really have two key phrases when it comes to your weed management program that I find are important. And the first is to start clean and stay clean. And that's the, that's the type of year that the kind of year um, where we're at right now. So uh, when I say start clean, that usually means your burn down. So your burn down can be tillage. I think we've seen a lot of that here in central Iowa, especially to help dry things out. Uh, guys will get out the disc or or whatever they need to to finish the soil here in the spring. But a lot of times it means going out. Uh, you know, around this time, if you're planting a little bit later, if you want to plant uh, early, you probably did this a week ago or so. But going out with something like glyphosate or a growth regulator like dicambit to take care of any weeds that are that are up. So those would be your winter annuals. Um, sometimes you'll have some maybe early emerging grasses, but that's uh, not exactly common. Um, so from there, you move on to your, your pre-program. So if you did tillage, your burn down and your pre will kind of be in the same program. But at the same time, I think if you're going to use a residual pre-product, it's, it's nice to have a glyphosate or a dicamba in there to control whatever may be up since sure. you sprayed your burn down. Sure. So I guess a, a really good example of, uh, of this would be um, using something like glyphosate uh, with dicamba and then a residual product. Uh, from, there, there are a couple different uh, you know, sites of action you can use. So you've got your group 14 products, your PPOs your group 15 products, your, which are the long chain fatty acid products. In short, that would be like your, your warrant, uh, uh, so your acetochlor products. products. Yep. Yep. And then uh, group 27, so HPPD products. Uh, there are a, a multitude of those that you can use uh, in a burn down situation. Um, and generally, you can, they're safe to use kind of up, up, uh, before you plant. So uh, in, in soybean brand, this is where I really like the flexibility of the extend cropping system gives you, uh, you know, you've got the flexibility to go out and spray dicamba with your pre. You can spray it, uh, you know, two days before you plant. You can spray two days after you plant or even later, depending on sure. the, the situation. And, and that's certainly not ideal. I think some of the challenges we saw in weed management last year, Brent, were pre's that went out after crop was planted in corn that was sometimes 10 days after the crop was planted yeah. uh, and that just put too much pressure on the system up front especially if the burn down was you know several weeks before uh, they planted and then you had your you, you know your residual pre 10 days after that that gets to be quite a gap in, in that uh, in that month where you didn't have anything sprayed so um, so that's kind of what, what I really like to see pre and I guess another recommendation is uh, related to volunteer corn, we may have had. A, I know we had a lot last year, and I think all of you guys listening probably know what I'm talking about for various reasons. But with harvest, especially for me in Southwest Iowa, with some of the down corn that we saw, um, we could have potential for volunteer corn again this year. Yep. And as warm as it's been, I've already seen some corn piles out in fields starting to sprout. Uh, consider adding some select, or I, I guess I say select. That's my generic term for agriminicide. So you're your ACCA's products, the the volunteer corn killers, yep. uh, may not be a bad idea on your soybean fields to to yep. go ahead and, and throw some of that out. Yeah, it, it, I think it's been a pretty common 
piece over the years to add, make sure it's in there, depending upon how you scout it beforehand. But I think it's something that, you know, we take for granted if you only see a couple plants here or there, but those plants do add up over time. Yeah, so I, I guess, Brenda, I, I want your thoughts on this too, but I think volunteer corn can sometimes be a weed that we ignore. Yeah. Um, but it technically is, uh, I guess, Roundup resistant if you want to think of it that way. Sure. Last year, due to the amount of rain that we got, I think across most of the state, uh, that volunteer corn just never disappeared. Yeah, yeah it's certainly something that... And it, it depends on the system too, right? If, if you're trying to cut that cost out of out of a system, that's something to think about as well. But absolutely, let's move into one last topic here uh, before we let them go. Uh, we've heard a, a bunch of noise from a lot of our uh, probably university uh, extension folks, weed scientists at universities about new new resistance across different states and what are we seeing. Uh, you know, we got three-way resistance on this weed and four-way mm-hmm. resistance on this weed, and and really, you know, what what's the, you know, what's the latest front on uh, some of our tough-to-control weeds as far as resistant goes? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, resistance is something that I'm sure you guys have heard about, or at least I hope you have. And what I'm going to say here is uh, really nothing. Now there is some new information, but everything that I that I'm going to you know talk about today is all been echoed by you know. Bob Hartzler at Iowa State and your extension agronomists, uh, to give them credit, they've been talking about this for a while and um, I yep. think it's gotten enough steam that people are really starting to uh, to pay attention. So, you know, resistance, is, as you all should know, is basically the, you know, uh, weeds in a population, whether it's in a field or across a region, um, develop a resistance to certain herbicides. Uh, there are def- several different ways that they can do that and the science of that is a little complicated and even for me it's a bit confusing. So I'm not going to get into that. but Basically, where we get resistance um, comes from uh, a combination of things. It comes from failing to start clean and stay clean, and then it, and it comes from letting weeds uh, emerge and come up and, and having to control them post-emergence once they've gotten tall. So um, my other tenet of, of weed management programs I like to call um, using overlapping residuals. Uh, layered residuals is kind of the same term. So basically what that means is you spray a pre that has residual activity. So residual means that it'll, uh, it's applied to the soil. It won't control emerged weeds, but it'll keep others from germinating and from emerging. Um, and uh, usually that they'll do that for you know 21 to 40 days, depending on the product. So overlapping residuals is uh, knowing when you sprayed your pre and, and calculating you know how long you're going to have that activity, and then before that residual expires, going out with your post and in that post adding a residual product uh, to again keep weeds from emerging until your your uh, rows canopy over in soybean, for example. So a great residual pre product post would be something like Warrant. Um, there are other products certainly, and even Dicamba will give you some residual around 14 days, yeah. uh, which can be helpful post. But um, what happens if you don't do that is you let weeds emerge. And while we can still control weeds with post-emergence herbicides, uh, as those weeds get taller, one, we risk yield loss, and two, we risk that we won't be able to control those weeds. Uh, water hemp is another is a great example. It can grow an inch a day, and, and when that weed gets really above six inches, there's very little that we can do to control it. So uh, the more of those weeds that escape, the more likely it is that they may pass along some sort of resistance uh, to whatever you sprayed. So uh, when it comes to resistance management, there are, there's a lot that we can do, and I think the biggest one for you, the grower that you need to be conscious of, is is understanding your weed seed bank and knowing what's in your field. So sure. 
The seed bank is basically just a fancy term for what's gone to seed in the past, what weeds do you have in your field. So I like to tell guys to look for trouble areas or trouble fields. So yeah. if, if uh, your back 80 has a, a 40 uh, where there's nothing but water hemp and it seems like no matter what you do, they're always there, that, there's a good chance that that population has got some resistance. It could be to glyphosate or uh, ALS herbicide resistance is very common with sure. water hemp in Iowa. Um, so when it comes to you know what we can do to 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 manage these weeds, uh, so I, I just mentioned you know scouting and understanding what your issue is. So after that, we we actually do still have some options, right? So we have crop rotation, uh, we have cover crops, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Tillage is still a valuable tool. Um, again, I'm a no-till guy, so it seems kind of uh, a tad sacrilegious to say that. But there, you know, if you are really dealing with some weed issues, uh, you know, sometimes getting the cultivator out in corn isn't a bad option. Or, or maybe uh, having to break your, you know, if you've been no-tilling for a while and you've got problems you can't manage, it may be time to add some tillage back into the rotation. Um, and then obviously we have herbicide, different herbicide options. So um, the biggest one that I want to leave you guys with is. Um, uh, a side of a side of action exercise, uh, I call it effective sites of action. So, for example, say you were spraying a post in soybean, you had an ALS herbicide, a PPO herbicide, you had your volunteer corn product, um, and then you had glyphosate. Uh, so, Brent, if you had water hemp in your field that you know is ALS resistant, and you think it might be glyphosate resistant, how many sites of action do you really have out there that's working on that water hemp plant? Not enough. Yeah, you only have one. You right. have you have your PPO product, right. and across Iowa, as we've we've seen, you know, a lot of people relying on those products. What do you think we've seen start to pop up? Yeah, PPO PPO resistance. resistance. Yep. So that gets to be a dangerous game when you start yeah. counting on only one product to control those weeds post emergence. Yeah. So and and it's and not, sooner or later, right? Those they're just gonna we're just gonna go down the list and lose lose all three right well correct potentially and i think in some places in iowa you're already seeing that yeah. and illinois has a large problem with ppo resistance as well and sure. uh, speaking of illinois it's not like this you know this problem is getting simpler or going away uh in the past few months we've had actually two different universities come out and confirm uh, herbicide resistance to a site of action uh, in water hemp that uh, we really hadn't seen previously um so that was a the group a group 15 herbicide esmetolachlor so the University of Illinois and the University of Arkansas found resistance in both water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Mm. So I believe the water hemp was Illinois and the and the Palmer was uh, Arkansas. So the, the you've probably seen this. There's been a lot of articles on the web about it. Um, so that's resistance to asmatolachlor. Their studies did confirm, however, that they didn't ha these reeds didn't have resistance to acetochlor. Mm. So uh, you know your your warrant and your your harness type products are still going to be effective. Sure. Um, but again, this is all like you mentioned. Uh, you just have to wonder, you know, when the when are these weeds going to just evolve resistance to that? Then, so yep. uh, the moral of the story is that Mother Nature is always going to stay ahead of us. Um, so we need to use everything that we have responsibly and and try to make things as diverse as we can with regard to how we manage weeds that are resistant. Yeah, uh, yeah. So thanks a lot, Matt. And really, so you said keep things uh, diverse. And so really, with the the new. The new company that we're working with, right, is mm -hmm. really um, brought in some new uh, new options into our our mix. You know, as a weed scientist, you know how excited are you to be able to to start messing around with you know products like Corvus, Caprino, uh, Diflex Duo, things like that into you know more diversity into the mix. Absolutely. So you know, basically getting access to a pretty new family of of herbicides, the HPPD inhibitors, is something that's 
uh, really exciting for me. I think it, it, it should be exciting for our growers as well. Uh, you know, Harness Max has Callisto in it. That's a product that we launched here a few years ago, but it is really nice to bring in, you know, a herbicide like Lotus. And when we talk about, you know, a product like Corvus, that's one, one of the biggest players uh, in the pre-emergence market for corn here in Iowa. And uh, those HPPD products are also really nice as a, you know, a burn down option in soybean. And uh, I'm just very excited, one, about the, the new herbicides that, that we bring in and, um, you know, especially a product like Diflex Duo, I think, in corn is a great post product as well. But it, 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 in addition to that, you also get a wealth of other crop protection products too. You know, on the on the insecticide and the fungicide side. Sure. You know, we've been t testing Delaro a lot in our trials, and yeah. um, it is just really exciting to kind of make our crop protection portfolio uh, really complete moving forward. Yeah. Along with our plant health now. Absolutely. With that fungicide component and insecticide component as well. So, so a lot of exciting stuff here, and and a lot of exciting things going on this summer with a lot of those uh, new trainings going on, and excited to be getting into. That. So, uh, Matt, we've taken enough of your time and enough of our growers and listeners' time. So let's uh, let's let them go and and let's get them back in the in the sprayer cabs and let's let them let them get something sprayed here. So yeah, happy, happy spraying and uh, yeah. again, don't feel don't feel free, you know like you can't reach out to, to Brent or any any of yeah. your your Monsanto rep or your 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 Bayer rep or DSM if you have questions. Yep. Um, let's uh, hope you get through spring safely and. Uh, Soundly weed control wise. Yes. And stay ahead of the planner. <laughs> yes. Stay ahead of the planner. Yeah. Good. See you guys later. And we'll hopefully have another one here for you in the next couple of weeks. Thank you.